Our Father and our God, as we come to this place, we desire that your Holy Spirit would already be at work in our hearts and that you would fill us with your Spirit so that we would have a receptive mind as well as heart to be able to respond to the Word of God this morning. And as our sister read a few moments ago, we pray and may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is clear that the Bible is filled with reflections on love both the love of God and the love of others. And there are, of course, in the scriptures displayed a wide variety of kinds of love. There is the love of others based upon maybe attractive qualities that the object of love might possess. And we have like Isaac's love of Esau because they shared a common love of savory game. We have the love of a father for a son, Abraham's love for Isaac, which made his offering of Isaac all the more excruciating. There is in the scriptures described the love of a man for a woman, Jacob's love for Rachel, which led him to serve Laban 14 years to have her as his wife. There is the love of friendship, David's legendary love for Jonathan and Jonathan for David, leading them to engage in a covenant to protect and provide for each other as either might have need. There, of course, is even romantic love described in the scriptures in an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon. There is the love of neighbor, of course, which is commanded as far back as the book of Leviticus. And there is love for God, commanded as far back uh, as the Ten Commandments, expressed repeatedly by the psalmists. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord my strength. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications and on and on. And then there is the love of God for his people, also expressed repeatedly by the psalmists. Psalm 47, for instance, he chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. And Psalm 87, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. And he's not talking about a physical structure. We've been in the Gospel of John for some time now. And the Gospel of John is also spoken of as a Gospel of love because there is so much love infused all the way through the Gospel. Uh, God's love for the world. You're familiar with John 3.16, I trust. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is the father's love for his son. In John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And then John chapter 5, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. There is Jesus' love even for his adopted human family in John 11. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There is Jesus' special love that he had for a particular disciple. In John 13, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. 
And then there is the love of Jesus for his disciples in general. Having loved his own in chapter 13 who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And more and more we could multiply those texts, even in the Gospel of John. Which makes it all the more curious to me that in the midst of this final discourse that we have been studying for a bit now, uh, this final private occasion in which Jesus is pouring out his soul into the lives of his uh, 12 disciples, now 11, one final time, that he would once again bring up the issue of love and essentially preach a mini-sermon on it. Maybe it's because love is such a universal human impulse and disposition that so many of the problems in this desperate world's dire circumstances are caused not so much by the lack of love, but by misplaced love. So the psalmist says this, Oh, sons of men, how long will, you, will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless? There is no lack of love there. There is simply a misplacement of love. Psalm 52, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. Doesn't that sound very familiar these days? Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God all of which leads Jesus to conclude that he couldn't possibly say enough to these disciples about what constitutes genuine biblical love and how we should respond accordingly. And so that leads us to our text, this mini-sermon on loving one another in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of God. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And then this verse concludes, this I command you, that you love one another. The first thing that we notice is that this text has bookends. Bookends, they frame the instruction. They comprise the alpha and the omega of this sermonette on love. This is my commandment, that you love one another, Jesus begins. And he ends with this statement, this I command you, that you love one another. The use of bookends essentially encapsulates the instruction, indicating that what he is saying is contained within this admonition to love one another. And the instruction that frames the message is a command. It's not a suggestion. A number of years ago, Gene and I were riding in a taxi in Shenyang, China, in the northern portion of China, with Paul and Rebecca, friends of ours who were 
missionaries there. We were riding through an area in which there was a great deal of construction, which was the case in a great deal of China at that time, especially road construction. And the taxi was weaving in and out of all of these barriers. The workers had laid down lane lines dividing the road just as the same as we experience here in the States when they had finished a section of the road. But nobody seemed to be paying attention to it. There were taxis and cars and jitneys and carts and bikes and they were all over the road irrespective of the lines and the signs. Our friend noticed, I think, our puzzlement. And he said, you see those lines in the street? Merely suggestions. <laughs> Love one another is no mere suggestion. It's not the kind of advice you might find in the magazines that you could pick up in the checkout line at Publix. Five ways to live healthier lives kinds of things. Current thinking on how to prepare for family transitions. How to plan most effectively for retirement. Most of those kinds of advice have limited value. They're dependent on time and circumstances. They will be out of fashion just as fast as they had come into fashion. But no, what Jesus says here is not a suggestion. It's not merely even good advice. This is a command. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are obligated to love one another. This is a moral imperative, and you may not pick and choose your moral imperatives if you are a Christian. Jesus picks them for you. And he's not waffling on this commandment. It's not the first time he has issued the command, you'll remember, back in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. That was probably a century ago that you're thinking about chapter 13. It really wasn't that long ago, but Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He even made loving one another the defining mark of being a Christian in that chapter. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, the world will make decisions about whether your Christianity is genuine or is just so much blowing smoke based upon whether you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when Jesus bookends this instruction by commanding love one another, it is clear that very few aspects of the Christian life are more important to him than that. And further, he attaches no conditions to which kind of one another we are to love. How about those who are attractive one another's? But perhaps not so many unattractive one another's. How about well-off and influential one another's? but maybe not needy or disenfranchised one another's? How about one another's who enjoy the same things we enjoy, but not one another's who share no common interests with us? How about one another's who have pleasant and engaging personalities, but not so much with those with difficult personalities? How about one another's who look like us, who have the same cultural, ethnic, or racial background, as we do, but maybe not those who issue from a different stock. 
about one another who belong to my political party, but we wouldn't think about loving those one another's who are in the other party, would we? No. Jesus says love one another. No categories. So let's face it, some of us are more difficult to love than others, right? Jesus doesn't care about that. He loved all kinds of people and were to do the same. And make no mistake, Jesus himself owns this commandment. In John 13, he said, a new commandment I give you. It wasn't that the commandment to love one another was all that new. Uh, the command dates all the way back, you could argue, to Leviticus and the command to love one's neighbor. But coming from Jesus, it was his new commandment. He owns it. And so in John 15, he does the same thing. This, Jesus says, is my commandment, that you love one another. And so, dear friends, you cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus and play fast and loose with a commandment that he calls my commandment. The second observation we can make has to do with the extent of the love that Jesus requires of us as we love one another. This is my commandment, verse 12 says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. This is the place when you read scripture where you stop and meditate a bit on what that means. By the way, this is not new to the commandment. In chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Wow. I mean, wow. That's an incredible kind of love. The extent of love that Jesus requires for us in loving one another is the same extent to which Jesus himself loved us. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus explains exactly what that means. In verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. In other words, I want you, Jesus says, to be willing to die, to die for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe a willingness to die for someone you love is not all that unusual. For that someone special, we know of people who have done that kind of thing. Just recently in North Carolina, there was a father and a son fishing off a dock on a river. The five-year-old little boy fell in, and the father jumped in after him, and neither one of them could swim. They both disappeared and perished. And so it happens, a father trying to save the life of his beloved child. In this case, they both died. Even more recently in Atlantic City, a father went in after a child at the beach who was having trouble staying afloat. In that case, the child was able to make it back to shore, but the father did not. He went under and he drowned trying to save his child. That happens from time to time. But Jesus isn't talking about dying for someone with whom you have a special relationship. He's talking about a willingness to die for any of the one another's that we have described earlier. Those one another's that we like 
and those one another's that perhaps we're not so fond of. Those one another's that look like us and those who don't. Those one another's who we think are good guys or those who aren't. Paul puts it this way about Jesus in Romans chapter 5. He says in the beginning in verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, listen to this, in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners. So now Jesus says in Chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus speaks about laying down one's life for his friends. But listen, dear friends, when Jesus died for us, we weren't his friends. We weren't his friends, at least not yet. Jesus died for sinners. In other words, Jesus died for his enemies. But only because of Jesus' saving work and only because of having been born of the Holy Spirit, as we learned all the way back in John chapter 3, have we become his friends. That's the extent of the love of one another that Jesus requires. A willingness to die for another. But you know what Jesus requires may seem to be one thing when, when dying is like a father diving in to rescue a child drowning in a river. But the dying often that we experience needs to happen in the ordinary mundane conflicts of life where the wills of two people turn out to oppose one another, when a husband and wife have opposite desires, when competing visions for ministry in a church puts ministry leaders in conflict, and you can multiply those kinds of instances. That's when dying really has to happen among brothers and sisters in Christ. That's called dying to self and dying to sin. And that's the kind of love that Jesus re requires of us. But what about the friendship thing? Uh, he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So who are the friends of Jesus? Well, they are those, first of all, who do the commands of Jesus. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you. Jesus says you are his friends if you obey him, if you obey his commandments. James Montgomery Boyce identified three aspects of obedience that flow from this verse. One, the first one he identifies is active obedience. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We actually act positively in response to the commands of Christ. We do the commands. That's important because many church-going people think of obedience in terms of what not to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't drink alcohol, don't engage in extramarital sexual relations, don't play cards, don't gamble, don't do whatever, you know the drill. But doing Jesus' commands are positive. Do, 
meet together for worship. Do pray for one another. Do hear, bear one another's burdens. Do read the scriptures. Do work to fulfill the Great Commission, and on and on we could go. And so active obedience is what Jesus requires. It also involves continuous obedience, Boyce says, not just doing something on a particular day of the week, like Sunday. Good for you that you're here. But what about the other six days of the week? It's not just something that we do on a particular day, but obeying the commands of Christ 24-7 is what is involved. This is a present tense verb, do what I command. It's not what we call in theology punctiliar, that is at a point in time. No, it's continuous, continuous obedience. And it's also, according to Boyce, universal obedience. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The, ver the word what is a plural pronoun. The New King James renders it this way, whatever, whatever I command you. We're not to pick and choose which commands of Christ to obey. The friends of Jesus seek to obey all the commands of Christ as much as they are known and understood and as we are given opportunity to do so. Now, a couple of thoughts about this active and continual and universal obedience. First, our obedience will never be perfect in this life. You all are aware, are you not, that we are still sinners saved by the grace of God. We are sanctified, but we are being sanctified. It's a process. We are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Uh, Paul speaks about himself this way, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold uh, of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that's Paul. Paul, he's not perfect. I tell you what, I take great comfort that Paul isn't perfect. So the second thing we need to understand about this active and continual and universal obedience is this. We're called to obey Christ, but we can't do it. We can't. That is, we can't, in our own human strength, obey the commands of Christ. Can't do it. Because you see, dear friends, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit living and working in us that enables us to have the desire and inclinations and capacity to obey Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But don't forget this verse, for it is God who is at work, where? In you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So active, continuous, and Universal obedience, however imperfect and however substantial and growing, is possible only because the gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is working actively.
to enable us. But look also at the privilege of friendship with Christ. There is the obedience aspect, but there's also an amazing privilege. Verse 15 says this, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Do you realize what an extraordinary privilege it is to be called a friend of Jesus? It's amazing. Do you realize that we are friends of Jesus because he reveals what the Father has told him to us? All the things that the Father has told him. Do you realize that Jesus has revealed his will for your life? and mine. You know, friendship relies on communication, and the deeper the friendship, the deeper the communication. <coughs> Pardon me. And Jesus bared his soul to us. He communicated with us. And of course, for us to receive that communication, there's a process for doing that. That's why we need to be in the Word. That's why we do things like study with the pastor together. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we preach Christ from this pulpit. That's why we're working through the Gospel of John, which communicates what Jesus learned from his Father. He shares his thoughts with us in Scripture. And in prayer, we have the privilege of sharing our thoughts with him and in listening to him speak to us. We're not slaves. We're his friends because he communicates with us. He gives us the privilege of communicating with him. This is extraordinary love, isn't it, that he requires of us, this loving one another. But where does it come from? Well, let me tell you where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from us. We wouldn't even imagine this kind of relationship with Jesus, this kind of loving in our own human nature on our best day. And that's why Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The origin of this kind of love is Jesus himself. He initiated it. He chose us. Why did he do that? Didn't I have anything to do with it? No. You weren't even around when he chose you. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, listen, just as he chose us in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. His choice of his friends happened before you were even a glint in your mother's eye. That's why John says in his first epistle, we love because he, what, first loved us. Now, some of you will find that offensive. You, you may need to claim some role, you feel, some credit for coming to Christ. But the rest of you will fall on your faces in praise and adoration, realizing what great mercy, what great grace, you have received in his choice of you. Because Jesus loved you. Because Jesus chose you before 
the foundation of the world. I had a man in my prior church, just in the last couple of years, he's gone to be with the Lord, elderly man, and every time he was given an opportunity to provide a testimony in a worship service, he would always begin, always with tears in his eyes, saying something like this, I can't believe God chose me. I can't believe God would love me. Why me? And then he would give God glory for whatever it was that he wanted to testify about. It's time, dear friends, that whatever philosophical peccadilloes or issues you might have with God's choice, you put that aside. Put it away. And talk to Jesus about, him when you, about it when you see him. But instead, worship him. Worship him. And thank God for the love of Jesus. Paul says, but God... God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Jesus calls us to love one another as he has loved us. He has called us to love one another, and in so doing, he calls us his friends. And Jesus was the initiator of our friendship. He is the origin of our love because he first loved us and because he first chose us. Finally, look at the benefits of love. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. There are two wonderful benefits described in that verse. First of all is fruit. We are appointed to bear fruit. We've already actually learned a great deal about fruit bearing in John chapter 15. This is the chapter which speaks about abiding in the vine and bearing fruit as a result. And we get to see yet, yet another glorious aspect of the fruit which comes to us as we abide in Christ. Verse 2 talks about bearing fruit. It says abiding in Christ means bearing more fruit. And then in verses 5 and 8, Abiding in Christ is said to be, mean bearing much fruit, an even more superlative degree of fruit bearing. And now in verse 16, we find that it means bearing fruit that remains, that lasts. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit, lasting fruit. That's the progress of fruit bearing that we see in this extraordinary chapter. You know, when I was teaching... At West Virginia University, I was privileged to help uh, in, involved in program leadership that led that program into national prominence in the field in which I taught. I, I certainly hope that some of the things that I did to establish those kinds of things before I left nine years ago would still be there after a while. But I'm not naive. I've been gone 
nearly nine years, and I'm sure that that program bears little resemblance to some of the things that I fashioned myself as being able to do. Some of those things I trust were fruitful, but they weren't eternal. They weren't lasting. But in Christ, by his Spirit, as we abide in Christ, we are able to bear fruit that will last, will last, in fact, for all of eternity, because we abide in Christ. It's the kind of thing that Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Bottom line is that abiding in Christ, we will bear fruit that will remain, that will last, that will stand the test of the fire. It will be eternal fruit. What a glorious blessing that is. And then secondly, the other benefit that we have and when we love one another is that God promises to answer our prayers. Verse 16 again, you did not choose me, I chose you, appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that, listen, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Fruit bearing and answered prayer, the benefits of loving one another. So dear friends, are you a friend of Jesus? Are you a friend of Jesus? Are you committed to loving all the one another's that you have opportunity to love in this world? Are you willing to obey Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you grateful for the privilege of knowing Jesus, of being a recipient of his loving communication, of experiencing his answered prayer? And will you embrace the sovereign love of Jesus for one another? Let me conclude these words with, or this message with some observations about loving one another in this passage from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, but for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would move in our hearts to make us lovers, lovers of all the one another's that we have occasion to love, lovers who are reflecting the love of Jesus, lovers willing to die for one another. And we pray, Father, that you would do that in a way that very clearly befits the Lord Jesus Christ and displays his nature and character through us so that when people see us, they would recognize the friendship of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.